I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Welcome to the sixth Life in Dub podcast, my series of in-depth interviews with people who've lived their lives in dub and reggae. I've been receiving some great messages of support, suggestions and questions from many of you out there, so thanks for that and keep them coming. Welcome back to all those who follow Life in Dub and hi to any first-timers. Don't forget you can go back and check out all of the previous episodes at any time. As ever, don't forget to subscribe to the show and as usual you can email me at vibronics at gmail.com and you can visit the podcast website lifeindub.com. This week, I wanted to talk a bit about albums and about singles, and more importantly, I want to ask the question, is it still worthwhile to make an album? I love albums. I mean, I was brought up in the age where albums, across all musical genres, were celebrated as the best way for an artist to really express themselves, and the best way for audiences to really dig into what an artist had to offer. I still love albums, and I think in terms of albums for most projects that I get involved in. But this year with Weeding Dub, we decided against it for our new project, at least to begin with this year, we're only releasing singles. Singles have always been the musical artillery of sound systems. I mean, who plays a whole album on a sound system? But even in our beloved sound system roots reggae scene, albums have always been important, but now, It's the year 2020 and people listen so differently to music with instant and pretty much free access to just about everything ever released. So I kind of have this open question. Are albums still important? I still love making them for sure, but over time, do people really listen to those album tracks between the hits and the anthems? I mean, all of the tracks? Or do people just choose what to listen to pick out the biggest tunes or just selected favorites? If this is the case, then is it worth spending so much time in the studio producing tracks that just end up lost on albums? I really don't know the answer to this, and for sure I'll continue with making albums despite the singles-only experiment with Weeding Dub and shit. But how do you listen to music? Do you dig into older albums all the way through, or skip to the best bits? Feel free to let me know, because I'm sure the answers are much more complicated than I think. This week, my guest is Russ Disciple, one of the founders of the UK dub and root scene from the late 1980s right up to now. Disciple's music has always been a major influence on Vibronics, especially those legendary 90s tunes like Prowling Lion and Return to Addis Ababa, still so fresh sounding and still influencing producers today. I interviewed Russ over the phone, so please excuse the odd audio glitch. I'm sure it won't stop you from enjoying this fascinating insight into Russ and his musical journey. So, enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So, Russ Disciple, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Hey, Steve. Very pleased you could join me, although you're yeah. all the way down there in, in, in on the south coast somewhere. I'm on the south coast, Bexhill on Sea. Just, you know, two-minute walk to the, the seafront, it's all right, you know. When the sun's out, it's nice down there. Well, I think Leicester is the second furthest city from the sea in the whole country. We can only dream of the sea up here. Well, you know, I never had no thought about it before, but, you know, having to move and stuff, it sort of, like, seemed like a good idea, so... The one, one thing I'm, I'm trying to ask everybody who's on the podcast is to name a track that they heard and from when they heard that track they look back and it's like well that kind of changed everything for me there, there was no turning back after hearing that so 
I was wondering if you've got a track you can think of. Yeah, well, you know, I've kind of mentioned it a few times. I mean, there was obviously that, you know, the kind of first tracks uh, that, that I ever got into that kind of like, you know, I was okay, you know, before that I was into, you know, the Stooges and Jimi Hendrix and punk and, and what have you. And then, you know, once once punk had finished, then it was just like, what else? And uh, having an older brother who was into into the into some reggae, you know, it was just like, what was what was something to kind of check? So it was Dr. Lamentado and Joe Gibbs, Dub Chapter 3. You know, they was kind of like the introduction kind of uh, 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 pieces of music. But I suppose musically for for my career, it was kind of, I suppose the the, the turning point really was was first time going to Shaka, um, you know, and hearing some tunes. I mean, I've kind of mentioned it before, but there was one particular tune, well, there was a few particular tunes, but the one particular tune that, that he had played on that first night that I'd went, that I'd had the record on on a 12-inch, I'd bought it in a record and tape and stuff. It was Johnny Clark. Um, but they're so different on the sound, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. It was a Johnny Clark tune called Joe Love Is With I uh, on a Greensleeves 12-inch backside of Bad Days Are Going. And, and you know, Bad Days Are Going is, is kind of like a bit of a, a, a known boom tune, but compared to Johnny Clark, you know, circa 75, 76 with Bunny Lee, King Tubby's dubs and stuff, it was kind of like it was a bit ordinary, you know. The mixing was kind of like it wasn't nothing special on the on the on the twelve inch. It just kind of let the rhythm run, and you know, didn't do too much. And I got rid of the record, you know, because it just wasn't to me. It just wasn't like classic Johnny Clark. Yeah, it was. You know, you were picking up them tunes in record and tape for you know twenty p, forty p. So it didn't seem like a a big loss to get rid of it. But, you know, some months later, you know, going to, going to Shaka first dance and he's played this tune and it's just like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's what it was made for. It was made for this thing here. You know, the sound system and stuff. And, you know, and I kind of recognise that tune there. And I had to go back out and, and you know, <laughs> find my way down record and tape exchange and buy the tune back again. What sort of period was this? Well, this was in 86. Okay. So, you know, that was, I mean, I'd, you know, I'd been making a little bit of music, you know, for about a year up to that point. But mostly it was just, you know, doing over old favourite tunes, Studio One and stuff like that. Very little, in, had very little idea of being able to do my own bass lines and stuff. Um, I suppose because, you know, you was doing it in your bedroom, uh, you know, you didn't have, you know, you couldn't have it kind of like sounding loud and stuff because your neighbours and things so you've all you're always kind of running it at a, a sort of low level which is kind of fine I'm you know these days I listen to most most music at low levels and I'm quite uh, uh happy with that and I'm aware what the tune is doing and stuff it's your experience of hearing so much music yeah. on sound systems that probably allows you to listen to it quietly now because you just know how mm. it's going to drop but that's because you've heard it drop so many times that's right yeah that's it I mean that was a thing you know it was just like after after going to Shaka that first time it was just like you know a bell rung in my head it's uh, all of a sudden you can kind of figure this is how tunes are meant to sound so even if I'm sitting there in my little studio and my bass is going doo -ga -doo -ga -dung, it's like in my head I can hear it you know as, as it's coming over shaka speakers it's not going doo -ga -doo -ga -dung no more it's going boom, 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 boom. you know That's so it kind of in your, in your head you can hear that now so you get an understanding of of how bass lines work you know and that's uh so I suppose that was a kind of revelation to me. And this is like Shaka 86. Now, a lot of people talk about how um, by that sort of time, it was 
maybe down to the more faithful followers of kind of because people have moved on and a lot of you know the, the masses yeah have very into much other so music. i mean there wasn't there wasn't really any other sounds i mean not like i kind of particularly looked for other sound systems but there wasn't there wasn't really that kind of uh, you know, most of the big sounds from from previous, you know, that Shaka might have played back in the seventies or early eighties and that, they'd all moved to dancehall. You know, there was that there was that video that was uh, a show I think in Birmingham or somewhere of, around eighty five, eighty six. Big big uh, uh, show where they got all these renowned sound systems from from around the country. You know, to play on a stage, you know, to do selection on the on the stage, and you see some of these big old time dreads up there, and blah blah blah, and they're all they're all busy playing dancehall. <laughs> you know, that's the way it kind of uh, gone. It was only Shaka. Shaka was the only one that was that stood up there and played some roots. And what what was a Shaka dance like in '86? Especially for the people who are listening, maybe '86 yeah. was maybe a long time before they were even born then what what, mm. what what could you expect this is this is in london in 1986 i mean it's a different yeah. world isn't it well it was i mean it was it was quite an experience i mean you know even at that time he still had his old boxes and stuff them old double face things that a jar and shaka sort of hand carved into the boxes and that uh, you know you sort of i mean we was kind of naive and got to the got to the uh, uh venue sort of you know when it's saying you know nine till 6 a.m and we're there at nine and it's just like you know shaka don't turn up at nine o'clock in the evening to set up you know what i mean it's just like more like midnight you know but uh so we was there from the off so we see the whole part of it you know the say, stringing so up for your first session you you get to see the sound string up and everything string up cables all going across it's none of this like nice neat tidy cables you know taped under the floor and all that kind of stuff that people are doing now it's just like cables you know spider webbing across the, the the ceiling and stuff you know what i mean just like them pictures that was in the NME from 1981 you know, I don't know if you re- uh, remember that that art- article that was written on sound systems back then. And the front cover had a picture of, you know, inside a venue and there's just all these cables going all across the, you know, above people's heads and stuff. It was just like that. So, you know, seeing that experience and then, you know, when he puts on the first tune and you get that sizzle of the tops, uh, you know, and the kind of little crackle you, you of the realize rain. you're in you're in for something else. Well, you're in for something else, and it's just like you know you hear that, you know, and then the mid range sort of comes in and stuff, and it's like you're starting to recognise the tune. And you think, yeah, you know, and then you know suddenly the bass turns up, and oh, boy, <laughs> you know, that's just a next level experience. You know, what I mean, uh, people these days, it's like you know, it's kind of like. It's, it's all been there and done, you know. I mean, nobody, I don't think, is that that impressed. I mean, the people are more impressed about, you know, how many tens of thousands of watts, you know, people are playing and stuff. But, you know, at that time there, you know, if you didn't go to sound system, you wasn't aware of, of them kind of levels at all. Well, I know, I know from my perspective, like when I started going to sound system was like, I want to make music for these sound systems. I want to hear the music I made on this on these sound systems. This this is kind of this is what I want to make music for. It's, I don't know if you had a similar kind of effect on you. Oh, totally. You know, I mean, it was no more sort of doing over Studio One tunes and stuff. It was just like you know, it's like oh, we've got to make we've got to make music that that, that drops like this. You know, you, you you sort of you had that you had two kind of things to it. It's like one, that understanding of how the music drops and then that understanding of like the style of music. You know, Shaka was a very focused uh, uh, part of the scene, you know, very, very, 
focused on a style of, of how the rhythm drops and stuff. So as much as you can like a, you know, a soft tune in italics, it's just like you don't go to Shaka to hear soft tune. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you wanted to hear serious tune. So, you know, so that, that was, you know, again, it was just like, yeah, that focused, you know, what we was sort of, uh, trying to do with with making music as well. So we look at whilst talking about making music, if we just rewind a bit. Then when mm. when did you start actually becoming interested in making music yourself? I mean, did you did you yeah. learn any music or anything? I mean, how, how did all that stuff start? Not really. I mean, I, you know, I sort of you know I picked up bass when I was fifteen. So you know that was nineteen seventy six. Not for reggae, obviously. I mean, the first bass line I I sort of my brother thought sort of showed me to to play was. Um, uh, a tune called Grip by the Stranglers. So, you know, it was just like that, that that kind of thing there. It was all happening then. That, that was the time, wasn't it? I suppose so. But again, we was out in the suburbs. You know, we weren't sort of, you know, inner London punks and stuff. So we was never really... I mean, my brother joined a, 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 a kind of little local band for a while and I used to go along with him to the rehearsals. He, he actually played uh, guitar, like rhythm guitar and stuff. He wanted to to really be doing that, but they wanted him as a bass player because they already had their, their rhythm guitar. So my brother didn't have a bass, I had a bass, so he wanted to borrow my bass to do to, to play with his band and stuff. So, you know, that I used to go along with him and stuff. And kind of, it was interesting, you know what I mean? It's like, you can, you know, you kind of had thoughts of like, yeah, you know, this would be good to do and stuff. But I think when you see music being done, it's, mm. it's kind of, because it, music's a bit of a mystery until you see people actually doing it. And then it's like, yeah. oh, maybe I could do that. Because I know I had a kind of, I wanted to make music, but I just didn't know how to do it until I saw some friends do it. And then it's like, right, so if they can do it, then surely I can have a go. Yeah, I mean, it kind of differently, you know, I mean, I never never took it seriously from that time. You know, it's like once once that kind of, that little thing with that band sort of finished and stuff, it was just like, that was it. You know, I just become a listener to, to music, same way uh, with my brother as well. But by sort of mid-80s, um, I just started playing around with music. I had this little, this, this uh, double cassette machine and it had mic inputs and stuff. Um, and I used to play a record and then kind of put the mic around the, the bass, treble and, and, and mid-range speakers of, of me, Wolfdales, uh, to kind of remix the sound of 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 the record and stuff with, with a microphone. With a microphone, yeah, because you know you put it to the to the mid range and you're, all you're hearing is all you're recording is the mid uh, mid range speaker. Then you bung it to the bass and it's like all you're getting is the bass. You know what I mean? And then uh, then you could do some weird thing with putting out if you had two mics in. You put one. I used to put one in the middle of the room and then this one around the, around the speakers. And if you pulled one of the mics in and out, it would go from mono to stereo. And it just it just re- did this really kind of weird thing, which was kind of interesting, you know. They're like the initial sound experiments that get yeah. interested in, like, what is sound? And like, how can I kind of it. manipulate yeah. it? And-, and then I started to see, you know, in 85, I mean, they started, you know, there was things like Porter Studios starting to come out and stuff. And I, you know, I was, a, I was what, I was 24 then, um, you know, sort of, Doing that boring thing, you know, of a twenty, you know, twenty-four year old of going down the pub and three times a week and wasting money on booze. And I know I was never much of a boozer anyway, but you know, you just go down here, you talk the same talk, tell the same jokes with your friends, you know, week in, week out. And just, you know, by twenty-four, it's just like that's kind of like, oh gosh, it's mind-numbing, you know. It's just like this, this ain't an interesting life. 
Um, and then I see, you know, I see in these magazines, uh, uh, you know, the thing like the Porter Studio, the little four track. And it was kind of, although it was expensive, it was kind of affordable as well. You know, because it's like if you if you wanted a four track machine before the Porter Studios, you had to go and buy, you know, a big uh, uh, four track TIAC reel, reel. And them things were expensive. And you needed cables and a desk and all sorts of things. You needed all studio. of that as well. So, you know, I mean, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be talking grands just, you know, just to get yourself up and running with, with that kind of thing. Whereas when the Porter Studio come out, it was just like, okay, it was 500 odd pounds. It's like, that's, that's still a lot compared to nowadays where you could buy a computer for 500 pounds and Cubase, you know, LE or something and you're off, you know what I mean? But, you know, okay, you get the Porter Studio. They started to come out with cheap drum machines. I bought one of them little um, Roland uh, uh, drum machines, you know, the little silver box ones. Like the, or the 808 or something? It's not, not wasn't it? Eight, what was it? Um, oh, I can't remember what they called it now. But the, I think some of the hip hop guys used them later. But I mean, it, was, it sounded shit to me, you know. What I mean, but it was cheap. It was, you know, it's about one hundred and eighty pound or something like that at the time. Which, you know, I remember going into one one local uh, uh, music store down down near me. You know, they, they had a Lindrum. It was a used one. Now, Lindrum was quite a good drum machine, but it was fifteen hundred pounds. You know, it's just like just a different world, isn't a it? different world. You know what I mean? But this little uh, Drummatics or something, wasn't it? I think that's what they call Roland Drummatics yeah, yeah, yeah. or that's, something. That's the one. Yeah, you know, it sounded really kind of tin pan cheesy and stuff. But it's it sort of like okay, it was something to start with. I had the bass guitar. I had this little four track, some cheesy little keyboard that I had. You know, I just started to do some things. I bought but that's, a little. That's the whole band, though. You have got your drum, your drums, yeah. your bass. You got your chops. Then you're off. That's it. You're off and stuff. And but obviously with dub, you kind of want your little effects and all that. So it was like, you know, I had a little Boss foot pedal delay, which sounded awful. <laughs> you know, it's like one of them kind of bucket big brigade uh, delays. It's got no top end to it. You know, but it's like it again. It's affordable and stuff. And there was a. Um, a Boss Spring Reverb as well, I think something like an RX100 or something like that. Um, you know, so it's just like you get your little effects and stuff. And I think in my local my, my local guitar shop, they had things like um, little syndrums, you know, little Boss syndrums and a hand clapper. Them things were like £20 back then. There was nothing, you know what I mean? You've, you've, you've set your little kind of bedroom studio up and you're starting to build some rhythms and then maybe you've gone to a Shaka session and because at some point Josh Shaka actually released Disciples music so he's yeah, obviously playing yeah. it and then he feels strongly enough to release it on the Josh Shaka label so how, how did that sort of transition happen because that's a, quite a journey from <laughs> yeah it's, it's quite a journey I mean it happened in quite a short time really you know I've, I've said in, in interviews before you know we gave him a dub plate that had four true tracks on it a mix of each track and stuff we just gave him that to see what it was you know what he thought of it and stuff and he took it he's might still have it <laughs> you know never gave it back but we had four tracks in there I think one was kind of like an original sort of steppers track a couple of others were sort of like reworks of of things but it was kind of all fitting for for that that kind of shaka vibe you know and he heard it and sort of said you know if you got anything more and blah 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 come to the next dance the next dance was like the week after so, you know, that, that revelation of, like, how to make tunes, be, you know, come a week after we'd sort of given him the first dub plate and stuff. And so, you know, from that, it was just like, you know, right, we're going to Shaka every week and, and we just want him to play more of our tunes. So it's just like, 
let's build more tunes. And with that understanding of, of the type of tune, uh, the right type of tune, you know, for Shaka. Do you remember hearing your, when you first heard your own production on the Jar Shaka? Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a few months in because, you know, again, being naive, uh, uh, suburban guys, you know, we'd still get to the sessions early. And did, did you make it all the way till six in the morning? No, we never made, we didn't, you know, it was a long, it was a, a few sessions before we made it to, you know, to last of that time. So, you know, come, usually come two or three o'clock, we're sort of like, you know, our, our eyes are sort of starting to droop now. And he's not even got into dub plate at that point. He's still playing, and you know, plastic and stuff. So, uh, but then we kind of, you know, so we didn't hear our, our own tunes for a little while, but then we kind of did make the effort. It's like, okay, we need to stay. You know, once we kind of understood, you know, the kind of layout of of how Shaka uh, uh, runs a dance and stuff, it's like, okay, we need to stay to the end. Um, you know, and, and, you know, that first time of being in a dance with him playing one of our tunes, it's just like, I can, I can remember the sort of, you know, hearing the intro drum roll and stuff and... Uh, and you knew from then that, that's one of mine yeah that's that's mine and and you know i'm a white guy you know in a dance that's you know if i can count the amount of white guys in this dance on one hand that's how many other white guys there were you know it was just like mostly still uh, black people at that time there was a little contingent of asians in one corner uh, that had been going for a couple of years or so and I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, you know, these, 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 these guys are just going to know it's done by some white guys and just kind of like stand there, <laughs> you know. Leave the, leave the dance floor. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're all just going to sit down for, for, for five minutes while Shaka runs our tune or something. But, you know, and I can kind of feel the tension in the back of my neck and stuff, you know. It's just like, oh, God, you know. But then he plays it and everybody's sort of going bonkers to it. And it's just like, I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> you know. And we was unknown. Nobody knew us. You know, Shaka didn't sort of call us. Uh, you know, you know, he didn't sort of stand there dance. Yes, it's them two guys over there. And over in the corner, this is Russ who made this tune and his brother. And yeah, like, yeah, there's, yeah. There's none of that. He, I think in a way, you know, I remember him sort of saying to us, he, he kind of wanted to keep it quiet because he kind of did know it was just like, it wasn't a thing that white people had been making this music and there could be some some prejudice against it. Um, and, you know, I think there was a little bit you know so you he, he kind of felt that he just kind of let let it let it just sort of let the music play to them let them get into it and and you know once that's kind of accepted then uh, you know it can kind of become more known and stuff well i remember when i started getting into it, and this is like in the 90s and like buying your music and like alpha and amigas and duggies and whatever and then there's no pictures on the sleeves and in those days in leicester it was still very much a black thing um, and I just presumed that the music was 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 part of that was was part of that whole culture, and I didn't realise white yeah. people were involved in it at all. And it was only when someone when Barber from Abishani told me, he said, "Oh yeah, well, Russ Disciple's a white guy." And back in those days, there's a lot of mystery around everything. I totally, you know, I mean, and and Shaka, Shaka knew that, you know, so he, that was his kind of idea was just to let the music speak for itself first. Um, but you know, at the same time, you had guys like Manasseh that was on the radio and stuff, and it sort of it kind of come out of its shell over a period of a few years. It sort of all come out of its shell, you know. You started seeing more white people at the dances, even before you know the like the culture promotion things through Manasseh and Joey J being on the radio. It just kind of 
it, it sort of made it kind of like safe for for white people to be involved in this music, I suppose. So going, going so sorry, but go, and going back to like your music being played mm. um, by Shaka, then like how how did things progress from then for you? Because it must because I remember when I first heard my tunes being played, it's like it's you, you really it just gives you a lot of confidence because when you start out, you've got no confidence and you just think, oh, I made these tunes and whatever, and to hear them alongside tunes that you love. Is quite a powerful thing. I mean, you know, to me, it was just, you know, it, it kind of was it was like a hobby and it sort of remained like a hobby for a good sort of number of years. I was just kind of happy making tunes and giving them to Shaka. Um, even, even when he was putting out albums, I never saw it as like, this is my musical career. Uh, you know, it just didn't seem kind of real like that. You know, I was still in awe of of reggae music. I was still in awe of you know Augustus Pablo and you know Freedom Sounds and what have you. So you know, to me, I was just another. I was just a little guy doing doing a thing and and giving the music to Shaka. It was only because you started to get to know more people in in the music business that you start to kind of realise, oh, it's it's maybe it is. Uh, uh, you know, something that we can pursue more intently. You and know, the sort of the te- technical stuff. Then, obviously, because like disciples productions uh, for me have always seemed to be like high fidelity and high quality and whatever. And it's kind of where where and you you got no training, I guess. No, it's all all self taught. But you use your ears, don't you? You know what I mean? And you kind of, I don't know, there was always, I always had a thing when I first started even was was like, I, I could kind of hear into a tune. Because obviously, like, cause I think of like the, the stuff you did on the Shaka label um, mm. and then releasing his albums and lots of rhythm tracks and whatever. But then I guess for me, like maybe one of the first tunes I ever heard was the Rashida stuff. I remember it sounding really fresh at the time and it still sounds fresh yeah. now. But you, you must have been like, kind of I guess at the forefront of well like, things have kind of kind moved of on just, you know I moved there. out of the bedroom and I built the you know the studio in the back garden and stuff so and, and I think even by that time I kind of expanded what I was doing you know I'd got into the whole MIDI equipment stuff so it was a you know less using you know any kind of live instrument and stuff it was just like using drum machines and sound modules and uh, synthesizers and stuff like that, but that but that seemed to be a big release at the time, and I, I remember just hearing it everywhere. So I don't know how it was for you. Well, it's Roots Records, you know. Obviously, you know when you're doing your own thing, you, you're kind of like, okay, you can maybe afford to go and get the record pressed, and you can do the running around to, you know, the record shops and maybe a distributor or two. You know what I mean? But you kind of you don't know nothing about promotion, and you know there wasn't the same kind of levels of promotion that you could do these days you know there was no internet or anything like that so unless you kind of really knew how to how to promote your stuff you, you didn't really didn't do any any promotion you just you gave it to the tunes to shaka <laughs> that was the promotion you know what i mean maybe you'd send it to john peel um you know and hope to get some some you know radio play and stuff which you know used to do used to play a few tracks Rodigan, you know, played some of the tracks and stuff. But Roots Records was an established record label. They might have been relatively small, but they were established and they had their network. So, you know, I think they had some distribution that could get out into some other countries and stuff. And, and that sort of early 90s time as well is that your music um, your music seemed to have a bit of a wider appeal as well. It's, it's being played in the, in the kind of 
the hardcore roots dances being played at your your Jar Shaka sessions. But there were some other yeah. people in the sort of techno and other kind of fields who seemed to be kind of get tuned into what you're doing as well. Well, it was a lot of that, you know. I mean, it was, you know, through all the different tunes and stuff. And it was kind of like the scene was sort of coming more overground as well, you know. It's like there was there was an interest from outside of our scene into our scene. So, you know, people people from techno and, and things were, were sort of looking at some of it. You know, some of it was interesting to them. I mean, you know, they've been, basically, they've been UK dub around for ages, you know. But I kind of, I remember when, when going to my... my my distributor in 93, which was SRD, Southern Records. Uh, and they didn't want to take my first tune, Proud and Lion. They just, they didn't know us, you know. They had, I remember the, uh, the guy sort of saying to us, oh, we got all Shaka stuff, we got all Mad Professor stuff. Uh, I think they had all Black and Mix's stuff, you know, guys that had been around for a few years and, and all that. Uh, but they said it wasn't setting. They couldn't set it, so they wasn't really that that interested in taking anything new. They couldn't sell Prowling Lion. Well, they didn't. They didn't know Prowling Lion, so they didn't. They, you know, they took one copy and didn't kind of know it and stuff. You know, I mean, they they didn't have that vision of 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 doing anything with it. But on our scene, it's sort of like you know, Joey J was playing it hard, both on the radio on and on his sound system and stuff, and people were just taking uh, uh, notice of it. And you had things, you know, you had make some magazines and things that was kind of coming out at a time, you know, not reggae magazines, but other kinds of magazines, and they might have a little article that was on, you know, some of some of the tunes from our scene and stuff, and our things would get kind of uh, included into that because I suppose it was new and fresh people were looking at it and so it, it sort of you know it bubbled quite quite solidly at the time especially those like because you've got the, the, like the Rashida stuff like Roots vocal stuff but stuff like Prowling Lion like instrumental stuff and I remember it sounded like it, it, you know it sounded like like Roots Reggae, but like Roots Reggae I'd never heard before at the time. It was really, it just sounded so modern and fresh. And I could see people around me who weren't into reggae were kind of like, oh, what's this tune? This is amazing. I suppose, I mean, the thing about, with, with, with Rashida is, I mean, the, the album as a whole, if you, if you check it, is quite sort of diverse. So there are tracks that, you know, are obvious kind of sound system tracks. There are tracks that are kind of like a bit more melodic and stuff because I love Jamaican music. You know, and Pablo was a quite a big influence. You know, Pablo when he was doing things like Ragamuffin Year and and that kind of stuff. That that sort of digital, new digital kind of sound that was around at yeah. that time. You know, and some of the, the stuff that was coming from Jammies and and what have you, uh, early Exterminator stuff and, and all that. So you know, I, I kind of I liked all that stuff as well and wanted to bring some of that influence into some of the things that I was doing. I could always see that there was a difference between doing vocal tunes and doing dub tunes. It was like that was kind of like they're, they're sort of although they're kind of interconnected, they're sort of like. Uh, two sides to the coin you know what I mean they take a side each and stuff so um, I kind of knew that the dub stuff has, has an appeal to a certain type of type of people whereas maybe the root stuff doesn't but it has an appeal to a next set of people and, and stuff and I still think that's true but also around that time as well is you had the sound system as well I mean where, where, when did that all start? again that was through Joey J uh, um, partly because he invited us to play, to do a little guest spot. I really invited my brother because my brother was doing the Boom Shakalaka magazine. Um, and, you know, obviously through that, you know, through, uh, you know, people seeing that, you know, we had 
uh, hopefully, you know, decent taste in the music and stuff. And it was kind of a focused taste, you know, uh, around the shaka scene and stuff. It was like, um, you know, Joey J had asked him to to do a selection up at a, a night he was doing up in Dingwalls. So we went along along to that, and I had a, a little cassette tape with a couple of the Rashida tunes, and we decided we was gonna uh, uh, bust a couple of them in on the night and stuff, which we did, and that all it all went kind of down nice and all that. And then Joey started up the the nights down in Southall in the community centre, um, you know, all guesting on his sounds. There was you know him, us, and Eastern Shear, which was the, you know the local Asian sound from down there doing these these guest nights and you know the first the first uh, couple of nights that he did i think what he did him as free entry um they was rammed out well you, you can't be a free entry you can't be a free entry but you know obviously it's a sucker punch to, to draw people in you know once they're drawn in it's like oh you can start charging them now you know what i mean uh which did work you know it's like yeah because you know you've got you've got to make people see that there's something interesting to come to so he did that. So we was doing them things for a little bit of a while. There, there was okay. always a there was always a limitation with playing on someone else's set. You must know that yourself. You know, it's like uh, especially as, well. yeah, <laughs> you know, keep the bass down, don't go into the red light, and all them kind of things. There, you know, so it's like you know, I kind of just just had the idea. It's like I wonder what it'd be like to get my own sound system. You know. So crazy talk that is. Yeah, you know the mad, mad idea of getting your own sound system together. It's like it was just like this seemed seemed really kind of interesting, you know. So it's like yeah, just just go into it, you know. Let's see what it costs. You know, them days there, it was like go to the go to your bank and get a bit of a loan, borrow some money from here, borrow some money from there, um, see what you can do, you know, that's affordable and stuff. So, so you, 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 so you built the sound and then you were ready to play out with it. And when, when, when did you first start playing I out I think it was it? 91. I'm, I, I kind of get lost on the timeline a little bit. It seemed like it was 91, I think, we started playing with a sound system. And how was it having a sound? Because I've never had one myself. I've been lucky enough mm. to be invited to play on so many sounds, which I love to yeah. do, but... I've never had a sound myself. I've always focused on the studio and the label. So how, how was well, it? If you want to lose money, get a sound system. <laughs> <laughs> it was all right. You know, I mean, it was kind of interesting. You know, I did kind of enjoy it at, at times. But, you know, I always kind of felt afterwards, it was just like I remember more about all the stuff of moving the sound system, clearing up the sound system, checking the sound system, wiring the sound system, than I do ever remember playing the dances. You know, your head's sort of more bogged down with the the technicals of it all than, than anything else. So There's a lot going on. People don't realise when they turn up at the dance and just enjoy it, they don't realise what's going on just to physically make all those things happen. So get those boxes in the room, get them all playing. It's kind of it's yeah. a submission. It is, and it's, it's a certain mission. And, and, you know, it's like we really didn't, we never, you know, through the four or five years that we was going, we never really had a, a proper crew as such. We used to have a couple of guys there, but, just, but basically it was just me and my brother. Um, so it could be hard work sometimes, you know. It's just like lifting all them boxes and stuff like that. So, um, you know. And then obviously things, you know, you, you blow a speaker or two in a session and stuff and it's just like, you know, any money that you got at the end of the session, it kind of went on the van hire and fixing up two speakers. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you'd sort of, you'd, you'd rarely make any money at, at it, you know, even if you was kind of an established name. You know, very few of the, the, the sounds were making money. Only those that kind of could get a residence or something, you know, and were playing out 
you know, every week and stuff, which, you know, that don't really happen with every sound system. It happens to very few. So. Obviously, you know, the, the 90s, um, and it was just personally, it's a very big influence on the stuff that I do here in those tunes and kind of those early, like Boom Shaka Laka releases and Roots Records releases. But then... I remember these like three mysterious seven inches coming out from like Backyard Movements label and it's like, this is Russ's new stuff. And it was like, there, there was a marked move towards doing more like Jamaican influence stuff because like Exterminator and Star Trail and Fat Eyes and they were all releasing great stuff at the time. And it's That's kind right. of, I just wonder how that kind of well, I kind of got you. bored with the dub thing, you know. I mean, when we started with the sound system, you know, we, both me and my brother, we had kind of visions of like, it sort of, you know, we'd make connections with Jamaican producers and get unreleased tunes or dubs and this and that, you know, that that same kind of history of getting music as, you know, as we'd seen Shaka, you know, Shaka was still taking himself off to Jamaica or to to New York to get fresh tunes and stuff like that. Um, but you know, when we started with a sound system, it was like the dub thing was kind of really kicking off and it almost become a thing of like, it took over, you know? And whereas like for a few years, it was kind of like interesting after a while, I'm kind of thinking, but I want to play some Jamaican tunes. And, you know, we were, sometimes you could, sometimes, you know, I'm not saying you yeah, couldn't. There was a lot of good Jamaican tunes coming out at the time as well. There was a lot, you know what I mean? But people, the crowds wasn't sort of... You know, whereas we might have been into them and stuff because we listen into them, you know, because we love reggae music and we listen into them because it's like it's, you know, the production's wicked and blah, blah, blah. And we we sort of looking for influences and, and things like that. Crowds ain't looking at that kind of stuff. They're just looking at what type of tunes they can skank around to. You know, it's like I remember, you know, we used to do some dances at, at the dub club and stuff and... You know, we we might be playing some new yard tunes and people are just kind of standing around to them. Uh, you know, play a stepper's dub tune and it's just like they're all going kind of crazy bonkers and stuff. But, you know, we love them Jamaican tunes. Why can't people see, uh, you know, feel them tunes the same way as we feel them? You know, I didn't have that when I was going to Shaka in the, in the earlier days. You know, Shaka could play any type of tune, whether it was one drop... Naya Bingy rhythm or whatever, and people would just be moving to them. If they're not moving to them, they'd still appreciate them. You know what I mean? They, they, they'd kind of, you know, it was just the vibe was kind of correct about it and stuff. But, you know, by that mid-90s and later 90s period, it was just like, I don't know, it just, it just seemed to change. People just weren't, weren't taking that interest the same way. So, you know, for me, in, in, when I started up the, the Backyard Movements label, it's like, you know, by, by 95, 96, I was kind of a bit bored of just endless steppers, steppers, dubs, dubs, dubs. You've got like 10 years worth of doing these kind of mm. like stepper anthems. And then, you, you know, I yeah. guess you need to challenge yourself in the studio and like do something new. Yeah, and doing something that I was kind of interested in, you know. It's, it's like I was interested in that kind of tune. Um, you know, and you're sort of obviously starting to meet up with some singers and... You know, I had the facility to to be able to to do a bit of voicing and things. Um, so it just interested me to do. And, you know, I kind of like, you know, them type of rhythms, non-stepper rhythms are more interesting to actually make. Because steppers is this boof, 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 a rolling bass line. You know, it's the same thing, one after the other, you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, one drops and stuff, you can move the bass line differently, you know what I mean? And you can you can put, a, a, you know, you can do little patterns with the kick drums and things, which 
just are kind of more interesting. Well, I was going to say, I mean, what, what kind of things would you like to be doing now? I mean, what else? Is there more stuff you'd like to achieve? It's, it's very difficult now being kind of old school. I'm kind of reluctant to do things like doing high-priced limited runs and stuff because that, to me, just don't, it don't sit right. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, I wouldn't want to be the person having to pay £20 for a seven-inch single, you know what I mean? So why would I want to kind of push that onto somebody myself? It's just, you know, them kind of things don't kind of sit right. So then you're kind of stuck with like, okay, you know, it's just unaffordable now to go and, and voice some artist and put them on a record and sell 300 copies. It's just, it can't work, you know, so... And I think for myself, you know, my whole thing is 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 being in a studio, you know, and you need to be kind of a bit more than that now. You need to kind of be proactive with uh, promotion and them kind of things. And I don't think I've really got, you know, that great knack for promotion. And But you, you still seem active in terms of mixing stuff with people and producing and it yeah. always sounds really fresh and obviously people are coming to you as that they want your sound on, on, their, on their music. Well, I kind of, you know, I suppose I did make the effort to try and learn my skill, you, you know what I mean? It is, you know, music is an art form, you know, and it's just like, well... You know, you're not going to get a, a painting by numbers in the Tate Gallery, <laughs> you know. It's like you've got to learn learn your art skill. You've got to learn how to kind of get the sound to come out of itself, what sounds right, you know, good drum sounds, good, you know, uh, guitar sound and all this sort of stuff. You know, I'm still learning that shit myself, but it's just, just you know, you, you know, I always I kind of have my mind to to apply myself to that and try and make it better all the time you know you get you get ups and downs you know where you're trying something out out and it sort of it seems to be going backwards but then you know some months later it's just like oh you've got the you've got the gist of what you're trying to get and now it's kind of it's a next little level forward and stuff well one other question that i'm asking everybody on the podcast is i've got the book of dub so i'm writing everyone's name in the book of dub so and I'm asking people just to what what would they want written next to it? Something they've done, contributed, whatever. <laughs> so I'm writing. Yeah, yeah. Just that, that, that's a hard one, but it's I kind of think still learning. <laughs> still learning. That should be my epitaph, I think. Nice. Nice. But that's it, but that fits in exactly what you were just talking about, about wanting to improve the skill and kind of learn the craft more. And it's kind of um because I guess a bit like you, I mean, I'm in the studio a lot and I, I, I still love being in the studio. I'm fascinated by it and I'm fascinated by sound. And like you say, there's times when it's frustrating and it doesn't work out how you want because you set yourself high standards and it's not easy to reach those. But it's just fascinating to kind of how to make it better and how little techniques you can learn. And it's like that, that for me never goes. But, you know, to me, it's just like, you know, most of what I learned was just by listening. I listened to music. I listen deeply into it, not just like, is it a good song or something like that? How are they doing some of these things? And my mind can kind of, it, it can kind of figure out some of that stuff, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, and, and, and I'll try things. It might not be the way that so-and-so might have done it or something, but my mind is kind of trying to figure out, okay, it's like, it's got this bit of bottom end to it, but it's doing this on something else and blah, 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 you know, it's... That's that's kind of what interests me sometimes, you know. And at the end of it, you might get a tune out of it. <laughs> so. Well, that's it. And this is something I've said to a few people: is like, you know, the studio isn't for everybody. It's like it's it's quite boring for a lot of people. But it's kind of if you've got that analytical, creative ear, then you, yeah. you just get 
endlessly deep into it. Recently, uh, I was watching a video with, uh, it was kind of like a thing on Digital B. You know, I look kind of hist- history of, of him and stuff. One of his studio buzz was saying, you know, it's like he'll spend, you know, a whole year mixing an album and something, you know what I mean? It can take, you know, he'll just be at it just to try and fine tune the whole sound of of each track and stuff. And and to me, that says more. That says the guy is making the effort to get, you know, Digital B had hit tunes yeah. and he had hit tunes because he made the effort. He didn't just like figure, oh, I'm going to knock a tune up in, in, in two hours, mixed, finished, mastered and out on the street. It's just like, you know, this ain't 1976 with the revolutionaries no more. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is like, this is now. I think you see stuff like Rory Stonelove and he seems to mm. be quite deep into kind of like production and just trying to... Yeah, that, well, that's, 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 that's what I see. And them guys, you know, you listen to some, something by Rory and the, the, the sound is just massive. <laughs> you know, everything sounds big and clear. I wish I could get that sound. I don't know how he's doing some of that. But then he's got good musicians you know, that you can call on to do certain things and stuff. Um, and obviously years of, of being around Jamaican studios and, you know, guys like Stephen Stanley and whoever, you know, I mean, he would have would have learnt the world of stuff from, from all them guys. Uh, you know, we have to be aware that we can't maybe do what they're doing, but we can kind of strive to get some, somewhere near it, you know. So that's, that was kind of my thinking. Yeah, it's like... You know, I can't play a drum machine like Sly Dunbar or whoever, you know, Stealing Clevian, you know what I mean? It's just like, you know, them guys, that was their thing, uh, you know, but I can do what I can do and I can do this bit and I can do that bit and I'll, I'll try and make the biggest effort I can on, on each of them elements to get the whole thing to sound as, as good as I can. It's like, if it don't sound that good... And it's like, oh, I've, I've still got to learn, <laughs> you know. Well, Russ, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Hi, thanks, Steve. It was a good one, yeah. Good to, good to catch up and reminisce a bit, yeah. Nice. Thanks again for joining me and Russ for this sixth episode of the Life in Dub podcast. As ever, you can visit the website, lifeindub.com, and don't forget to subscribe to Life in Dub wherever you pick up your podcasts. Of course, feel free to email me at vibronics at gmail.com with any comments and suggestions for the show. And I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.